we're excited to share that the following offer has been extended through the end of the week. We hope you become a member today. Tuesday, February 28th marks one year since we launched the DSR Daily Brief. We're showing our thanks by providing you with our best sale price ever on membership. From now through March 4th, visit the dsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DAILYBRIEF to receive 50% off our regular membership price of $50 per year or $5 per month. Members receive access to bonus content, an ad-free listening experience, exclusive blog posts, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, and more. This is a one-time only offer, so act now. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code daily brief to receive 50% off. Thank you for your support. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio. Coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from our nation's capital. Very pleased to be able to offer you today a discussion with Richard Haas, the CEO of the Council on Foreign Relations who has a new book called The Bill of Obligations, The Ten Habits of Good Citizens. How are you doing today, Richard? Excellent. Thank you, my friend. Excellent. Well, that's very good. <laughs> I, I should begin by saying I, I, I know you're stepping away from this job in June, and you've done it for something like 20 years, it seems to me. You've been spectacularly successful. It's just been a remarkable tenure, and you've transformed the organization, and you deserve an enormous amount of credit. Thank you. It's generous and uh, maybe not deserved, but certainly appreciated. Definitely deserved. And, you know, as, as one of these elderly council types who's been a member for 33 years or 34 years, I have some context, and it's really impressive what's happening. Thank you, David. Now, in, in addition to that kind of context, you know, there is the context in which this book, which is an important book, has been written because, you know, we're in a tough time and uh, you have always been a champion of, of not just civility, but informed civility in, in public debate on a wide range of issues, not just foreign policy. And, you know, I, I thought your book was extremely important because it seems like we're headed in a dangerous direction in terms of civil discourse in the United States. But as I was preparing for the conversation, I thought, are we really in a time that's very different? We all have seen stories or read stories of histories of people caning each other in the Congress in the 19th century. We know that Jefferson and Hamilton spread nasty rumors about each other. And, you know, voter turnout, the involvement of voters in politics, has been actually fairly constant since back into 
the very beginning of the 20th century, you know, where we typically would get 50 some odd percent of voters to turn out. Sometimes it's in the 40s. Occasionally it creeps into the 60s. And that's been a, I mean, of course, prior to women being able to vote and African-Americans being able to vote, low turnout was even more egregious, I guess, than, than it is today. But I'm just wondering, in your mind, is this period different on this issue of civility in public discourse and the role of the citizen in public life? In an answer, yes, but I, I don't disagree with what is at least part of the premise of your question. You know, we, we ought not to get overly nostalgic about the good old days because the good old days weren't always so good for any number of reasons. And there's always been gaps between our ideals and our, our reality. But I do think things are different now for a couple of reasons, plus the stakes are different. Let me just begin with the stakes. Given the U.S. position in the world, given what's going on in the world, a United States that's distracted and divided at some war with itself, I think the consequences of that are large, given that for 75 years we've played this outsized role in this world of ours. And if we're no longer willing and able to do that on a sustained basis, I think it has you know, tremendous consequences, much more than certain problems 100 years ago or 150 years ago. So I'd start off with that. But I also think the landscape is, is more difficult, in part given the nature of social media, given the weakening of, uh, of political parties, given the fact that our population now is over 100 times what it was when this country was founded and our institutions haven't kept up, given that a lot of uh, institutions in American society have gotten weaker, uh, we're more heterogeneous than ever as a people. So the idea of having some things that bring us together are more important. So I think it's different now. I think it's worse. But even if I'm wrong, it still doesn't make me sanguine. I still don't say, well, you know, I don't buy the Churchill line that, you know, uh, uh, Americans can always be counted on to do the right thing after they've tried everything else. And we've been through rough times before, and we'll get through them now. Well, maybe, but I'm just not sanguine. I don't know about you, but my principal takeaway from the last couple of years is be really, really, really wary of assumptions. I think that's right. And I think uh, we're at a precarious moment. I don't think in either of our adult lives, democracy was at risk in the way that it is. I, I think an important distinction at the core of your book is the the distinction between our rights as citizens, which are frequently debated, and our obligations as citizens, which are less frequently discussed. You want to talk about that a little bit? Because it seems like the core thrust. It is the core of the book. And it also might be one of the differences. Uh, when, you know, when you go back to the founding of the country, you go back to a lot of the literature, there was a lot of emphasis on rights and the whole there was a need to argue that this new, stronger government that the Constitution represented was not going to be so strong that it was going to reintroduce tyranny, if you will, into America after we finally uh, freed ourselves from the yoke of, uh, of Britain. So rights have been fundamental. It's still our unfinished work. So no one should misunderstand me. I'm not saying rights don't matter. Of course they do. They're, they're, they're central to democracy. But imagine a slightly improved universe where there was no gap between our rights and our reality, where, if you will, Lincoln's unfinished work were finished and we had complete rights, would that make American democracy sound and, and safe? And the answer is no. 
because there's simply no consensus on rights. You have a, a mother's right to choose versus the rights of the unborn or someone's right to bear arms under the Second Amendment, someone else's right to public safety, and so on and, and so forth. So when you have rights that come into conflict, what happens then? And you know, I think it was Justice Breyer, Steve Breyer, who said, you know, the tough issues that come to the court are not about right versus wrong, it's right versus right. And that inevitably happens. So if you have rights pitted against rights, you either have gridlock, if there's no willingness to compromise, or worse yet, the society descends into violence, where people who feel that their rights cannot be compromised and where they see a threat coming, they're prepared to do anything to eliminate that threat. So my takeaway is rights, as valuable as they are, as essential as they are, are simply not enough. The other side of the citizenship or democracy coin is obligations, and those are obligations that you and I would have to one another, and those are obligations that both of us would have to this country. You enumerate a number of these obligations. They're all, I think, sound and commonsensical. But I'd like to take one or two of them and, and talk to them in the context of reality. So one of them is be informed. Well, we live in an era of disinformation. We, you, know, you have this whole Fox news suit um, with Dominion swirling around us that makes this more apparent than it might have been to some beforehand. You can spend a lot of your time having information pumped into your brain by the internet, by cable television, by podcasts, by so forth, and not be informed if what you're getting is, is wrong or deceptive or, or, you know. So how do you address that? How do we address that core problem at the middle of our society? Because it relates to some of your other issues. Look, you're 100% right. And the reason I made being informed the first obligation is I do think it's foundational. Mr. Jefferson, if he could have joined us today, would have agreed with that. It's a central tenet of citizenship. And you've caught, you put your finger on what you might call the great contradiction of our age, that we're swimming in more information than ever, yet in some ways we're more poorly informed than ever. And, you know, there's, much, there's far fewer gatekeepers and a lot of the, a lot of what masquerades as information is really misinformation. It's not factual. There is no such thing as alternative facts, sorry. And, you know, Moynihan's idea that, you know, is right, that everyone is entitled to his or her own opinion, but not to their own set of facts. So I think that's where we are. You know, what do we do about it? It's tough. I think New Jersey took a good step recently in requiring in its schools that young people be taught what's called information literacy, how to become a critical consumer of information at this age. Where do you find facts? How do you recognize a fact? How do you distinguish between facts and, and something else? I think that's a uh, good idea. You know, what Fox did the other day, uh, I tweeted about it and said, shame on them for putting profits before American democracy, which is what I think they've done here. So why don't businesses who claim to be, you know, the Supreme Court said that corporations are citizens when it comes to free speech. So why don't corporations accept some obligations as citizens and stand up for American democracy? And among other things, not advertise on media outlets that undermine American democracy, promote election denial, that uh, promote political violence. So, you know, businesses are being pressured to do all sorts of things in the name of sustainability or diversity. I'm not arguing against those. That's a separate conversation. But why aren't they being pressured to do things in the name of democracy? Uh, you know, again, media outlets are always going to be competitive. You used to run one yourself. 
So, you know, then their businesses, most of them. So I understand that. And there's a tension between giving people what they, if you will, want to, want to, want to get and what sometimes they need to get. I do think we've got to do a better job of pushing back when media goes over the line like Fox did. And again, we have to, I think, train more critical consumers. Yeah. And I think both the left and the right have some introspection to be done on this. You know, on the left, it's very frequent that you hear people say that, you know, they have their own truth. When truth is an objective reality, something is either true or it's not. On the right, you've got efforts, as you have in cases of like uh, Florida, for example, where what is put at the highest premium is personal belief so that parents can say, well, I object to this being taught because it's not what I believe. But of course, what you believe is maybe a standard for a church, but it's not a standard for a school. 100%. And, you know, I, I'm not going to sit here. You and I have known each other a long time, and I think you'd probably use quite a few adjectives to describe me. I don't think naive would be one of them. I fully appreciate just how politicized education's become. I fully appreciate that some elected officials are more than a little bit willing to weaponize it. It resonates. Uh, it's going to be tough. And it might be in certain districts or certain states impossible right now. And if I were a parent in those places, I'd probably pull my kid out of school and have him go to a charter school or, or something something else. And if enough people do that, that will make a uh, difference. But I think in some states, quite a few states, I think there's still a good chance of getting some decent education. And I, you know, when I think of what I want to do down the road to follow up this book, I can imagine work on a curriculum that might not you know, be wildly enthu- or enthusiastically supported by everyone, but hopefully it also won't be rejected. And I think we've seen some attempts at uh, courses and curricula that have gone way, way too far in one or the other direction, uh, left or right or whatever you want to call it. So I, you know, uh, again, it ain't going to be easy, but it, it, it's certainly worth uh, running. It, it's, you're never going to meet universal success. And if some state adopted what I want, I expect there'll be some people who would want to pull their kids out or give them supplementary, quote unquote, education to offset it, so be it. Yeah, by the way, I don't want anybody to come away with the idea that I think anything about this book or its author is naive. I think these are 10 habits of good citizens that people ought to apply. I think how to apply them is the, the riddle that follows reading a book like this. And one of the areas where that is apparent to me has to do with something where you talk about staying open to compromise. And, you know, I, I come from a tradition, you know, sort of the foreign policy community that we both were brought up in, where, frankly, one of the beauties of the community was the expectation of civil discussion, the understanding that different sides would have different points of view, and according respect to the other side so that you would weigh things in that context. But if one side is saying evolution isn't true or vaccines don't work or, as has been amazingly happening in the past 24 hours, January 6th really wasn't a violent coup attempt. You know, it's, it was actually just some peaceful tourists. And, you know, we're, we're being asked to deny what we saw with our own eyes. How do you compromise in an environment that's that polarized? The answer is you, you may not. I don't argue for universal compromise. Compromise may or may not be the best approach. You've always got to compare it to the alternatives. So in some cases, you hold firm and you 
you can't beat something with nothing. So you put forward an, an alternative. And it may be in some areas, in certain communities or states, we can't come up with a, an approach that is a, look, you'll never come up with one that's universally acceptable, but even one that's acceptable to a, to a working majority, then so be it. Again, um, look, we're divided. I get it. And it's going to be hard if you have a, a context or a media backdrop that is as that is like the one we have with major outlets acting irresponsibly as as they uh, are. And then again, you know, all I can do is I fall back on the critical abilities of consumers and I fall back on those who are, you know, look, Fox is doing what it's doing because of profit. It'll continue to do what it's doing until that that profit no longer exists. And so my view is uh, people should turn away from it and businesses to begin with should turn away from it. And I think businesses should be pressured to turn away from it. You know, businesses would come under tremendous pressure if they were to support certain things uh, uh, that would be considered racist or discriminatory against women. Or look what's going on now with uh, the move against Walmart. Why are we not, why are we not willing to, to act in the name of democracy? against those who would threaten it. I don't understand that. I mean, part of the, the, the issue here has to do with not just Fox, but all media, when there's an impulse to suggest that the media has a, a, an obligation to fairness, when in fact, that's not what the media has an obligation to. The media has an obligation to tell the truth. Presenting both sides of a story when one side is wrong or malicious seems irresponsible to me. Uh, look, yeah, exactly. I mean, you get if one side says the earth is round and the other side says the earth is flat, I don't think equal time makes a lot of sense. That's not fair. That's just stupid. So I think, again, we there's got to be the law of reason here at times. And again, it's not going to be for everybody, but you have to hope it, it prevails. And that's where, you know, me, if media is in business, then they have to get those who to get involved who make that business viable. And again, you know, Media survives on two things, advertising and subscription or viewers. So one has to try to, for if media is going to act irresponsibly and threaten democracy, hopefully one can find ways of either weakening its advertising base or its, its viewer base or readership base. You point out that you can't legislate this. This has got to be something that comes from within the citizens. But having said that, there are some things that we could do differently. There are countries, Australia comes to mind, there are countries where you're obligated to vote. And you're somebody who's tracked the world. And I'm just wondering if you can think of a couple of examples of countries that get this better than we do and we could learn from them. As it turns out, I learned the other day, it's not technically voting that is mandatory. You have to go to the polling place. You get a ballot. You can foul your ballot. You don't pay a fine if you foul your ballot. You just have to show up and be bothered to do that. I don't think that would go down well here. Americans don't take well to things that are mandatory. And I think if we made voting mandatory, there'd be enormous pushback. Indeed, you'd never be able to get the votes to make voting mandatory. If you try to make public service mandatory, I think, again, you'd fail. So I think you want to incentivize In the case of public service, you want to incentivize it. In the case of voting, you want to make it easy. And there may actually be a compromise there. I, I expect not everyone's going to agree with me, but I like the idea of making voting easier in this country. Employers can let people off, or better yet, it would be an, an, a national day off. So people could vote, be a holiday. And, but there might be a compromise in the way of some type of voter identification system, that if we ease voting, but make it clear that only those who are meant to vote can vote, there may be potentially a political deal there. And both left and right would have to uh, 
find some common ground there. I don't know if that's possible, but I at least would think it is uh, it is worth exploring. You know, some other places, I think, you know, some of the countries in Europe, the Finlands and others, have uh, made real strides in voter sort of information literacy. Most of the European countries do make it much easier to uh, to vote than than we do, but yeah, you know, I think Americans are pretty firm in there. They don't like to be told what to do. True, although the, you know there's a, there's been a movement for the past twenty years. Some countries, led by the likes of Estonia, some of those Scandinavian countries you talk about as well, where they say internet access is a right, fundamental right that could conceivably. Uh, help. We have laws in our country, like uh, the one that was debated in the Supreme Court early last week, Section 230 of the Telecom Act of the uh, 1997, which essentially has a, a class of media companies behaving as though they weren't media companies. Well, I'm not sure they are media companies. Uh, and- I mean, I think it's, you know, they're providers of pipes or infrastructure. And you know, large amounts of uh, information for large amounts originating from millions of places, individuals uh, is there. Yeah, you know, the Supreme Court. I'll be I'll be shocked if the Supreme Court seriously re-regulates that space and says that they are media companies rather than providers of uh, pipes. Uh, I don't think Congress is going to heavily weigh in and rewrite the '96 Act. I just don't see it coming. Maybe there'll be a little bit of movement, but I again I. I think it's more likely to require improvement in the discrimination of American consumers than it is that we're going to change the way we, we regulate Facebook or, or, or Twitter or, or Instagram or anybody else. I'm just, I'm just skeptical that either the court or the Congress are going to come down and uh, really change the way uh, we do that. The idea that we'd give tremendous latitude to people working for these companies to define what is acceptable content, I just don't see it. Yeah, well, I with slightly different views on this because I don't think they're just pipes. They're algorithms in those pipes that determine whether some viewers or listeners get clean water and some don't get clean. Well, the water, algorithms, right? no, that's a that's a different thing. And I think there there might be certain things there where they have accent highlighted certain things, intensified certain things, and I think we're going to possibly see that in some of the you know the case the courts hearing, and it's not that. And this idea of the use of algorithms to magnify, if you will, certain information, to put it at the head of the queue or make it more frequent, that's a different, that's showing a certain bias. And that might be, there might be lines drawn there. And I think that's a totally legitimate point. You know, we both have had kids go, go grow up, become adults in this uh, society. I personally am encouraged in many respects by what I see in Gen Z and and the kind of issues they're engaged in. Clearly, the most important audience for your book is the young audience. Have you had exchanges with younger citizens and 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 as you've been going around with this book? And do you see some sense of hope or or special concern when you talk to them? Funnily enough, it's been more older citizens that it's the parents and grandparents who are worried for their kids and grandchildren. And they look at this country and they say, this is not the country I grew up in or thought I knew 30, 40, 50 years ago. And they are then getting it for their kids and grandkids. So there's that. And I've been talking to a lot of schools about getting it into schools. And so, you know, the book's only been out for what, just over a, a month now. So I haven't had a whole lot of reaction from 
you know, young people other than the odd anecdote, and it's pretty positive. But the stronger reaction has been from their parents and grandparents. And I think they're the ones who hearken back to a time when this country was socially and culturally different, and they know something is amiss. I think for younger people who don't have the comparative perspective, for a lot of them, this is just the way things are. And it's one of the reasons that many of them are as alienated from politics as they are, as discouraged as they are. So I think that's a, it's a more important reach, but it might be a slightly harder reach. And that's why I think, again, uh, that's why, again, I'm working so hard to get it into schools. Yeah, it's really, it's really important. I hope you're very successful with that. You know, I did a study once when I was running foreign policy of the top 20 schools of public policy in the United States. And I did a bit of a, a, a series of questions about what they were covering, what they weren't. And one of the areas that almost none of them had a requirement in, and many of them didn't even teach courses in, was ethics. You know, the, and, and it seems to me there are areas like ethics, also some areas of technology, where we have to train our future policymakers in, or we are going to compound these problems. Or, or do you think that's a Band-Aid on a bigger issue? No, it's just sad that you're right. And I think it's to some extent that we used to have figures in a society, including parents, who would address such things. Or we had the congregational and religious leaders. And the country used to be slightly more church and synagogue and mosque-going than it is now. We had public figures who modeled certain kinds of behaviors that were, that were admirable. And I just don't think we have as much of it now. So again, I think there has been a deterioration. I hate that word, but probably in some ways, in some of the fabric of this society, in our culture, there's been a coarsening of it, I think is fair to uh, say. So that's why, again, I feel, you know, I felt compelled, you know, to talk about things like civility and about norms, I think, uh, and about the responsibility of religious authorities to step up. And I'm not asking them to take policy positions on what to do about Ukraine, but I do think religious authorities could pretty safely speak up and talk about civility or not resorting to violence, or being open to, to compromise, or above all, the common good. If religious authorities can't speak to the common good, which is the essence of being one's brother's keeper, who else can? No doubt that's the case. Uh, just one, one final question that uh, links into this, because you write about habits of good citizens. And of course, the assumption is that the citizens are operating in a democracy. And yet there is a strong undercurrent, not just here, but in a number of places, to explore authoritarian paths. Some of them I made mention to earlier, schools that take books out of the curriculum, for example, or courses out of the curriculum. But again, as somebody who's watching the world and sees what's going on in Italy or India or Turkey or Hungary or, or, or Russia, and the links between those people and CPAC and groups in this country, do you worry it's too little too late? Do you worry that democracy in this country is on the critical list? Short answer is yes. I worry about trends not just in the authoritarian world, but I'm not surprised about trends in the authoritarian world. I worry about the trends in the democratic world, the illiberalness of many democracies. You see what's going on in Mexico, the attacks on the Electoral Commission. You see India going after the press. You see Israel going after the independent judiciary. You mentioned what's going on in places like Hungary. So we're not alone. 
what's going on here. What makes it different is given the the outsized importance of the United States in the world, the, the consequences of a, a backsliding here are greater than they are in other countries simply because we have a larger role in the uh, in the world than, than these other uh, countries. And again, it, it pushes me back to things like civics. I want young people to study what is a democracy, why it's valuable, why it's preferable, what it though takes to, to operate one successfully, both in general, but also in the, in the American case. And you know, it drives me crazy, David, that you can attend virtually any two and four year college or university in this country. And as you navigate your distribution requirements cleverly, you'll never take a course in civics. And you can graduate from most high schools in this country and either having taken, again, having taken no course or not having taken uh, anything remotely adequate. So we would never think of turning out a whole generation of young people who couldn't read or or write or or probably do certain things on computers. Why are we turning out people who are illiterate when it comes to citizenship and democracy? I just don't understand it. Sadly, I think I do understand it because I think there's a, a large constituency out there that doesn't want us to understand what these laws mean, what each of the amendments actually mean. I personally would welcome the teaching of civics if it cut down on the number of times I had to listen to somebody explain that we're a republic and not a democracy, which is one of the banes of our time. In any event, we've run out of our time here, but I really want to encourage everybody who's listening to go and get Richard's book, The Bill of Obligations, The Ten Habits of Good Citizens, and he makes a good point. It's a really good book to get for your kids or your grandkids or somebody else's kids or for a class that you may be teaching because we got to start somewhere. We've got to start with the basics. We've got to have sort of the instructions on the box of democracy. And this is as good a crack at that as I've seen in a long, long time. Congratulations, Richard, on the book. And uh, I, I do hope you follow up on it the way that you're talking about it, because it's it's essential. Thank you, sir. I plan to. It's uh, whatever my next chapter turns out to be, this, this will be part of it. We will all watch that with great interest. Thank you very much for joining us.